0: Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead. Follow your different. And today, an extraordinarily unique perspective on what is happening in the United States right now. You see, our guest is the legendary M.K. Palmore, and he's unlike anybody I've ever met. And candidly, it's almost as if his entire background uh, positions him to be a leader of this moment that we all find ourselves in. You see, he's a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. He has an MBA from Pepperdine. He had a distinguished career as a U.S. Marine and an over 20-year career in the FBI, where he did almost everything an FBI agent and executive can do, including being the assistant special agent in charge of cybersecurity. Today, he's a security uh, a expert, and executive, and advisor, and uh, he works at Silicon Valley's $20 billion market cap Palo Alto Networks. And so not only does he have this incredible career as a Marine, as an FBI agent, now he's a Silicon Valley-based executive at a major tech company. And here's the other thing about MK. He's African-American. And so his perspective on our world right now is like none other I have seen or uh, heard, and we go deep on all of it. And uh, this is a very powerful conversation and a conversation I hope gets heard by many. I also wanna personally thank my dear friend Dan Cassetta for introducing me to MK. Dan is one of the most wonderful executives I know. He's been on this podcast. He has his own podcast called Changing Lives. Check it out, it's a stunner. And for more on MK, visit Lockhead, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com. We're sponsored by my good friends at Oracle NetSuite. NetSuite's the number one company in cloud ERP. Check out netsuite.com slash different today. And my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. So MK, there's a ton of things that uh, are on my mind to talk to you about, um, but I'm I'm curious, what's on your mind uh, these days?
1: Quite a bit. Um, you know, I'm a father, uh, husband, family of five. Uh, you know, responding to. This entire COVID nineteen crisis that we're all in the midst of creates uh, quite a bit of uncertainty. You know, I got uh, high school age kids, and uh, my oldest um, son is now you know going into a senior year, rising senior, and we were, my wife and I are desperately hoping that uh, he has something akin to a normal experience so that he can uh, you know finish school strongly and matriculate on the college. Um, uh, certainly thinking about uh, you know work. Happy to have a great job now, working for a great company that I think is. Uh, uh, doing some interesting things in the cybersecurity realm, and then, you know, to top that all off, there's all the all the social unrest going on. So, you know, how do we all plug into that and make sure that um, um, we're being responsible responsible about not only how we interact with others uh, as it relates to this, you know, like we're having the right conversations that we need to have, um, but also thinking about this in a in a way that's uh, that's helpful to uh, potential outcomes.
0: Hmm. And so what, what do you think are the right conversations that we should be having, M.K.?
1: So uh, interestingly enough, um, just got off uh, the hook with a, uh, a dear friend of mine. Uh, um, more than 20 years, I've known a guy, worked closely with him in the law enforcement profession, uh, and he and I were going back and forth um, on you know, his perspective on this thing and, and my perspective on it. And um, it's clear. To me that um, even folks who have served together and spent time in the trenches um, have very different um, approaches and understanding of what's happening right now in, in American society and what this response is about and what it's, uh, you know, what it's like for others. It's, it's almost the, you know, we're all being required to walk a mile in someone else's shoes uh, with these particular incidents that are going on. And, and that, I think, is the hardest part for people to understand Um, especially my former colleagues in the law enforcement community who, you know, to I mean, 99.9% of them just good guys and gals who who joined for all the right reasons and just want to do the right things to to serve. You know, certainly from my aspect, I got into law enforcement to serve, not for uh, any other kind of uh, personal reason. I wanted to continue service to the country, and I felt that was the best way for me to do that. And, you know, the vast majority, I think, of people feel that way. But to not recognize that there is potentially an element of folks out there who uh, do not take the same approach to that profession uh, as they should and may bring uh, some things onto the job that um, uh, are not only not warranted, just should not be there, uh, to, not, to not just recognize that. that that's a challenge. Uh, and, and it's going to create some difficulties in having the discourse on how it is that we make change. Uh, Moving forward, because there there are a ton of folks who just don't want to acknowledge that there's a potential problem.
0: Hmm. Uh, Folks in law enforcement,
1: yeah, folks in law enforcement, and again, you know, I'm I'm of the age where most of my uh, peers and colleagues are now retired and on to other things. Uh, And these, you know, this is that's my peer group. Those are the folks that I still keep in touch with, uh, and these are the conversations that we're having going back and forth. And they're, you know, fortunately, because we are. You know, lifelong colleagues. We we're able to have these conversations without severing relationships. But um, imagine two um, sides coming to the table who have no basis for creating compromise. Coming to a table and discussing these issues, lots of passions uh, get involved, and um, people begin to you know you 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 can't get to the table. Um, and make those halfway come halfway uh, conversations, make them happen without being empathetic and understanding what the other side is feeling. And I just my fear is that we're not going to see enough of that. Both sides come to the table on trying to understand what the other side is talking about. That's what forms the basis of compromise and then talking about how to provide solutions.
0: And, and not to sound uh, overly stupid, but when you say both sides, w- would you mind sort of uh, being explicit with me, MK, about what you mean by both sides?
1: yeah so when I say both sides, I mean uh, the law enforcement community and then uh, the minority community uh on the other side, and specifically the black community you know i mean, we all yeah, long long conversations um you know for many of us like myself uh we were um we've been hearing these kinds of discussions since we were young mm-hmm. uh very young. It requires, again, an understanding that, hey, a potential problem may exist. And this is from law enforcement to the other side. Uh, We need to be willing to listen uh, so that we can make adjustments to how it is that uh, we go about policing, which I think will be a huge challenge. Um, And then, uh, you know, for uh, folks on the other side of the issue, um, they have to understand that yeah, policing is is extremely hard work. There are certain challenges uh, involved in that profession uh, that... um, uh, don't lend themselves to slow judgments. Um, You know, law enforcement officers train in a particular way so that they can make uh, quick judgments of assessment of situations uh, so that they can uh, um, sort of mitigate and uh, bring down um, a situation as quickly as possible, de-escalate a situation quickly as possible. And the fact of the matter is that, Now with, you know, a lot of these issues being brought to bear, um, uh, there's probably some training changes that need to happen on the law enforcement side. Um, And um, again, uh, it takes a lot for folks to recognize that there's a problem and really just start listening so that, um, again, uh, compromise can begin and healing can begin. And we're we're very far from that.
0: Hmm.
1: It's going to take a lot of leadership.
0: A lot of leadership. Interesting Mm -hmm. comment. And so maybe... um Look, and you tell me how comfortable you are. I want to be sensitive to your, uh, your background and your relationships and so forth. Um, but that said, do you have an opinion uh, that you'd like to express uh, around racism in the FBI? Racism in the FBI. So, so
1: I'll, I'll, I'll take a step back, maybe 30,000 foot view and make a comment uh, overall about law enforcement. I have, uh, again, as I like to both say and write, I've been both lucky and prepared in my experience growing up in this country. Uh, I am a product of this nation's uh, most revered institutions. I went to one of the U.S. service academies. I served in the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, I was an FBI agent for 22 years of my life. But before all of that happened, guess what? I was born uh, a young black child in uh, America. And so my lens. Uh, and the optic from which I've gone through my life, both professional and otherwise, is going to be different. Um, and so uh, one of the things I like to say, it's it's interesting, it's rare in my life where I've experienced such a confluence of all of the different aspects of my life kind of meeting in uh, one particular social moment. And I think this, I mean, the time is now. Uh, I, you know, come from the community, which uh, is aggrieved. Uh, I also worked in, professionally, the community that's on the other end of this uh, topic. And, you know, I was a, a SWAT-certified FBI agent. I've, I've done all the tactical stuff that people talk about and see in movies and get an opportunity uh, if, they're, if they're lucky to experience and be trained upon. And I feel like I got some of the best training in the world uh, in the FBI. Um, and while I do not believe that there is... Um, um, explicit racism present in law enforcement. I do believe that uh, there is uh, implicit racism uh, in our society and to believe that law enforcement is somehow immune to this, I think is, uh, is
0: misplaced. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I've heard people say, some people get angry when they hear the word bad apple, that they think that's a too polite way of putting it. We can't have bad apples in law enforcement, and the other expression I've heard is that officers, uh, law enforcement professionals, and and I have a, a question for you about naming, but we'll get to that in a sec. Sure. Um, okay. uh, they're sort of like air traffic controllers. We can't have one bad one because the um, the ramifications of one bad. Person in that kind of a role are obviously horrifying as as we've have we seen as we have seen many times in America and is now under the the sort of um, microscope now and so how do we get to a place where uh, and maybe it's completely unrealistic but I'm just curious you know if you say it's not about bad apple it's not that um, and and maybe in some Uh, Police departments or sheriff's offices or other law enforcement agencies of one sort or another. Maybe there is a systemic problem that needs to get addressed. Uh, But how do we make sure that there aren't bad people that we don't have one bad officer um, in the United States of America, regardless of the agency?
1: So um, uh, that's an end state, I think, that you could never achieve. Um, these organizations are too large. Um, you know, and you, it, in the FBI's uh, instance, only because I know the numbers of the FBI and when I speak to that, uh, you know, you can't have a organization of 40,000 people, you know, 13,500 of which are special agents, and not have any bad apples in there. Uh, what you should have, though, are controls in place so that once those, quote unquote, bad apples are identified, that they are quickly excised out from uh, the organization. Uh, And honestly, I can say in my time uh, in the Bureau, uh, I saw that happen from time to time, and they were actually pretty quick to identify and get those folks out of there. One of the challenges in um, local law enforcement, uh, again, are the interdiction of things like police unions and uh, these contracts that the unions engage in with the cities uh, that require the cities to, to take certain steps when they're evaluating performance. And it's my it's my professional opinion that they should not be that unions should not be involved in that aspect uh, of the job you know the, the the origin of unions was really around the idea of 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 you know worker safety worker compensation things like health health care, and that kind of thing and that's all appropriate and all um, you know um, uh, aspects of the job i think that police or uh, peace officers should have available to them but when it co- when it comes to actions on the job. Um, how they should be evaluated. I, I do think that there is some internal take that needs to happen there, but there also needs to be uh, likely an outside body uh, to do some external uh, looking at actions, police actions and otherwise, to make a determination as to whether or not they meet, um, you know, a common man's standard, uh, whether or not they meet the eye test. Um, because there are instances that you, know, that you could pick them out uh, where, uh, there are things that are brought to light that don't meet the simple eye test, right? You know, if you knew all of these things about this officer, why is he or she still on the job? Um, and that's that's the kind of thing where I think we need to build in some, um, uh, you know, some some processes and in, in society that will allow. Uh, that to happen, and to happen in a you know a way that allows for due diligence uh, and due process, but at the same time, if someone doesn't belong, not everybody deserves to be a police uh, police officer. Uh, it is a, a demanding profession, uh, and by profession, I use that word explicitly um, because there there is a tremendous amount that goes into putting an officer on the street. Um, And they need to do even more uh, in that regard, at least generally speaking, across the country. Uh, But once they're on the job, if they're not meeting the standard uh, of the organizations and, quite frankly, society, uh, in in terms of what their expectations are, they should not be allowed to stay on the job.
0: Amen. Hallelujah, brother. And the interesting thing, I think, and I'm no expert, I'm just a citizen, I'm just a layman. um, But I think we've seen some. Uh, leadership like you talk about. Um, Here in Santa Cruz, where I live, uh, we have a very visible police chief for the city and a very visible sheriff for the county. And in both cases, um, Chief Mills and Sheriff Hart have been very vocal, um, not exceedingly so, but they've been very clear. And in both cases, both agencies began to implement changes quite some time ago. Um, you probably remember, uh, way more than I do, but I guess there was a, a some kind of a, a big, big piece of work that got done under the Obama administration and a set of, um, uh, guidelines and so forth that came out as a result of that work and, um, around these topics, uh, and training that's associated with it and so forth. And, uh, My understanding, again, I'm no expert, is that um, both the police department and the sheriff's office in in our little part of the world here embraced a lot of those changes, changed training policies uh, and and so forth and so on. Um, And both have been very, very strong um, against police brutality. There was a photo of Chief Andy Mills. Um, uh, with the mayor of Santa Cruz, who also happens to be African-American. Chief Mills is, is Caucasian, and the two of them uh, kneeling at a Black Lives um, Matter rally in downtown. And that photo went viral and I think was a, a point of pride for the local community. So it, it, it seems like there are some in law enforcement um, who are trying to be very forward on their skis on this and have been for quite some time. But maybe a lot of others haven't. I know Sheriff Hart in his public uh, posting uh, called out other um, law enforcement leaders who have not embraced these kinds of things in the past and, and spoke to the union issue and, and others and was, I'm sure, caught a lot of flack for it. And so w- what do you think it's going to take for more leaders of various different law enforcement organizations to to uh, get more proactive about some of the things that need to change?
1: Well, you actually answered your own question there in the beginning of your statement. Um, I am a uh, lifelong leadership uh, student, leadership practitioner. Uh, That's what it's going to take. It's going to take folks who lean into this uh, with an eye towards uh, creating change um, sustainably, uh, but doing it in a way that shows that they have a firm grasp of what it's going to take to change change. Uh, both the perception and action uh, within uh, these agencies, and to the degree that you can, where you get strong leaders who are already present and who get it, they they always are typically first movers, right? They, those are going to be the folks that say, you know what, Roger, that there's a problem. Uh, let's uh, let's let's huddle with my team and figure out how we change this, and take insights and information from the outside because there may be some fair. Uh, observations that we can implement uh, that will get us partway down the field. Um, uh, Where you experience problems uh, are an absence of leadership, uh, where folks are just, again, no problem here, nothing to see. We're just going to press ahead, keep our heads in the sand and keep doing what it is that we're doing. Uh, And you're not going to see changes in places like that. Uh, There's a famous quote that I use probably more than, more than I should, from John C. Maxwell uh, that says, everything rises and falls on leadership. Hmm. Uh, man, truer words have never been spoken. He, he is absolutely right. Every success and every failure, right, it, it all rises and falls on the presence of leaders. Uh, and to the degree that there are strong leaders present who have the ability to um, outline that strategy, um, implement it. Get the right people on board. You know all the stuff that if you spend any time in leadership courses, or you've spent time in business or the military, this is all stuff that we know. Uh, and when people are doing those right things, um, good change uh, comes about. Uh, and, but when you're ignoring those those things, when you, when you when you have no strategy in place to make these changes, when you don't have the right competent people and leadership positions under you to help you create uh, this groundswell. Uh, of change when you're not collaborating with other leaders don't expect good outcomes.
0: You know, and as you're speaking, I'm just thinking maybe this is obvious, but it's true everywhere. And I think about your career, military law enforcement, and and hopefully we'll get to spend a little bit of time on, on what you're doing now in Palo Alto networks. But I know enough about Palo Alto networks to know that, um, uh, you don't get to be Palo Alto Networks without some serious leadership along the way, do you?
1: <laughs> no, it's, it, it's a fam- fantastic place for me to have, have landed. Um, you know, I was able in my former career as an FBI agent to establish some connectivity and relationships with some folks in the organization. Um, and uh, it's you know we liked each other. Um, we, uh, the folks I had relationships with, we came from similar backgrounds. They understood what I was trying to accomplish, and, and essentially, I was a fan uh, of what where the organization Palo Alto Networks was doing and where they were headed. Uh, and so, when it came time for me to to retire, I, I am lucky that I had an advocate. Um, available who knew my skills and talents and wanted to bring me on board. And so uh, that opportunity lined up for me. Uh,
0: Unbelievably cool. And I I do want to get to Palo Alto Networks. Uh, The the other thing I'm sort of, you know, you mentioned trying to have empathy and and be in others' shoes, so to speak. I would love for you to put me inside your mind uh, because I, I look at you and I think, I I don't I personally have never met someone who is a former Marine, a former FBI agent for many, many years um, that is a senior Silicon Valley executive in a uh, one of the most important software companies around uh, who's also African-American. I, I, I have there's not a lot of you guys walking around that I have met anyway. And so when you look at the world today, whether it's our response to COVID or our response to George Floyd or however you view this time that we're in, you're, you're one of the most unique people I could think of. And particularly for me in my world, having been in the tech industry for my whole career, I'm dying to know what does all of this shit look like to you, MK? How do, how do you process all of it?
1: Um, so again, um, interesting, uh, your observation, and I certainly appreciate it. Uh, I, I don't, I certainly haven't experienced a time in my life where the individual aspects of my life have found themselves again, again in a confluence with what's going on uh, in society. Uh, and you're absolutely right. I, I have been, um, again, I like the statement, both lucky and prepared, right? Uh, I Everything that I've done, um, I'm used to being the minority at the table. Right, uh, you know, uh, the acceptance rate at the United States Naval Academy is somewhere around eight percent. Um, I identified very early on as a child that I wanted to go to school there. I am both lucky uh, and I was prepared that I got into that institution. So As a little and, boy, you um, wanted to be well. a
0: marine. As a little boy,
1: I wanted to go into the navy. You, you knew you wanted um, to be I in the might navy. Have- one of the first books that I read was a book about the Battle of midway mm. and it was a the oddest thing a child's book about the Battle of midway <laughs> and the more i the more the more I learned about uh World War two and the idea that the entire nation was called to answer uh a challenge uh you know the the allies against the Axis powers i mean it was I was just fascinated by that kind of stuff as a kid um it, it didn't hurt. Uh, that you know, my childhood athletic hero also went to the Naval Academy, so uh, it was it kind of an easy pick for me. I'm a huge Roger Staubach fan, um, and a Dallas Cowboys fan. But I I was a big fan of Roger Stahlbach when I was a five six year old boy growing up in Washington D.C. Hmm. Another oddity, which you
0: just happened to <laughs> fall in that, love with him for for some reason. Yeah, he, yeah, he connected I, to you. He, he,
1: to me, he was Captain America, and I I literally um, again big fan of his, big fan of the Dallas Cowboys my entire life. Um, so it was easy for me to identify that as a place where uh, where I thought I could achieve my version of the American dream. I, you know, I bought into it lock, stock, and barrel. I say to myself, I'll go to a service academy, uh, likely serve in the Navy, um, because that, again, was the first uh, large um, uh, armed service that was apparent to me. Um, and it helps that you know, I grew up with a stepdad who was a retired Navy uh, petty officer, and he would tell me stories about spending time on aircraft carriers on the other side of the world. And, it, you know, my my future was locked and set at that
0: point. <laughs> you so, wanted to be one of those guys like him. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: And, and at, well, so my stepfather had served a career in the Navy. My dad had served in the U.S. Air Force during uh, Vietnam. Uh, so I, it wasn't. I came from a family of service. It wasn't, you know, some kind of strange thing to think about a career um, in the government. So, um, you know, the Naval Academy. Then while I'm there, I decide that, uh, you know, I'm going to take the path less chosen. I'm going to be a Marine instead of going into the Navy because in my mind, uh, it was a bigger challenge. Put before me to become a Marine officer as opposed to accepting a commission in the Navy, and uh, you know the, the Marines uh, do a good job. I, I laughingly refer to it as brainwashing now, but we, we call you, that marketing have, around
0: here, MK. Uh, it's great marketing. Yeah,
1: you see, like you, you see the sign. Behind I sure you. do, and I, mean, I know exactly
0: you, what it means and why you have it there.
1: <laughs> yeah, you, you cannot meet a United States Marine without them telling you that they're a Marine. You know, within the first couple.
0: <laughs> yes, that's first couple. That's true too. Hey, that's I'm a Marine. But you know what? In fairness, (laughs) if I was a Marine, I'd say, hey, I'm a fucking Marine, just so you know. I mean, everybody would know.
1: (laughs) Uh, So, you know, my career track, and I will tell you that I've told my wife uh, to this day, of course, I have no way to hold her uh, accountable for it, that on my tombstone, I want uh, husband, father, United States Marine. Mm. That's it. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, I go into this, you know, this historically, um, Uh, uh, well-respected fighting force, you know, the world over. I can go anywhere on the planet and say I was the United States Marine and people will nod their head. They understand what what that is, Uh, you know, become a part of that force. And on top of it, um, there weren't and still are not a ton of black officers uh, in the Marines. Um, Do you have any idea uh, of
0: the the, the officer officer serving, what percentage would have been black when you were serving?
1: Yeah, it's somewhere around 5%. It's it's again a very low number. So when and what I what would it be in the Marines make,
0: overall when you started?
1: When I started, there were about two hundred seventy thousand people in the Marine Corps. Um, still the smallest of the uh, four major armed services, but still it, it, at the time in the early nineties, the force was around two hundred seventy thousand people.
0: And what percentage of them r- can you remember would have been black at that time? Um, I do not know. Obviously, uh, minorities I think make up a good percentage, especially of the enlisted
1: mm-hmm. ranks. Uh, within any of the armed services. So you'll find Black, Latino, uh, Asian, and others uh, represented um, uh, rather firmly in uh, the enlisted ranks. As you get up to the officer ranks, those numbers change uh, quite considerably. And the Marine Corps, I think, probably uh, it, this may not. I, I doubt that this is a misstatement. Probably has the smallest percentage of minority uh, officers in its officer ranks.
0: And you think it was roughly about five percent in the officer ranks when you became an officer?
1: Correct. Correct.
0: Five. So five percent blacks specifically
1: within the within the ranks. It may have been something much less than that. Yeah. So, so, so you um, were again, a little
0: bit of a, a unicorn or a, <laughs> some something unusual
1: used to being the minority at the table, like I said. And then, you know, at the end of my time in the Marine Corps, uh, again, I got to a decision where uh, it literally boiled down to, okay, I, I think I'm going to get out of the Marines, but I still want to serve the country. How do I go about doing that? Um, and my best friend, um, uh, still my best friend to this day, he's a guy I went to the Naval Academy with and went in the Marine Corps with, and we both became FBI agents. And, um, you know, outlined the FBI opportunity to me because I was going to go to law school. I was going to, uh, you know, go on a completely different path. Uh, And I took a look at the FBI and they took a look at me and and I beat that number too. Three to 5% of applicants that apply to become FBI agents become FBI agents. And then you can imagine of that small number an even smaller number of them are minorities. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the the FBI experiences some challenges. In fact, I came in during a time in the uh, uh, mid-90s uh, where the FBI was just on the heels of a lawsuit that it had encountered, uh, from the black and Latino agents, uh, within the organization, um, called the badge lawsuit. And so I step into that environment again, um, uh, being, um, uh, young, full of vigor and vim and all that kind of stuff and, uh, and, and raring to go. But, uh, again, being a minority at the table, uh, uh but, Having a very successful career, and I'm lucky to have, have gone through that 22 years and gotten a lot of great experiences.
0: And I would imagine uh, being a U.S. Marine applying for that job, uh, that's kind of a pretty good background for that job. At least it sounds like to me as, a, as, a, as an ignorant person.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, no, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, and, and I, you know, I'm thankful to this day to the uh, applicant recruiter. So I was living in San Diego at the time. I was stationed at Marine Corps Air Station Miramar. Uh, And I literally called the FBI office there in San Diego, said I was interested in uh, applying. I had a face to face meeting with the applicant recruiter and I was off to the races. You know, I mean, he he saw the package right there, Naval Academy graduate, Marine officer. Nine months later, I was back at Quantico as a as an FBI agent.
0: So what's Quantico like? You know, we see it in the movies. We saw those famous scenes in Silence of the Lambs and we read about it and stuff. And so uh, take me there for a little bit.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, at, at the time, Quantico, the, the tour for uh, new agent entrance was a 16-week uh, course. Um, it is, to this day, um, I think, of course, I'm, I'm uh, a little bit jaded, uh, some of the best training uh, that's offered for professional law enforcement officers on the, on the planet. I mean, there's a reason why Um, officers from local police departments look to attend what the FBI calls the National Academy, and that's where they take um, standing law enforcement officers through a process of sort of getting acquainted with FBI training and FBI uh, approaches to law enforcement. And that's much more of a combination of thought leadership um, and leadership in policing. Uh, But the the training at the FBI Academy was uh, it's unparalleled. It was uh, quite frankly for a Marine officer so that the physical component was not all that challenging for me because literally I stepped from I, I left the Marine Corps on a Friday and showed up at the FBI Academy the following Sunday. I, I, so I got in my car that Saturday morning and drove across country. And that following Sunday, I started at the FBI Academy. So physically, I was ready to go.
0: Am I right in um, assuming, MK, that you, 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 don't, you can't be a, a US Marine unless you're in pretty <laughs> yeah, badass no, I, shape? I,
1: so I, I'm a I'm a guy of 51 years old now, and I, I can firmly say that um, I was probably in some of the best shape of my life when
0: I was the United <laughs> States Marine. So I, I, I went that would, into that would make sense and, to me. <laughs> yeah,
1: so I, I went into that training wide eyed uh, and fully capable physically of doing what I needed to do to, to get through that experience. And again, at the FBI training, a combination they literally take you from. First of all, FBI agents come from all walks of life. Um, there is no singular path that someone goes through in order to become an agent. In fact, um, they will tell you that uh, although they recruit heavily from lawyers, accountants, folks in the military, that there is no one direct path that will get you into uh, the FBI. They like to sort of mix it up and make sure they bring, bring people in from a variety of perspectives. But certainly those skill sets of you know having spent time in law or accounting um, or having a language skill make you uh, particularly attractive to them. And nowadays, those skills extend to uh, computing and technology. So if you come from the technology world, if you're a software developer, you've done some stuff in cybersecurity, that really makes you attractive because the organization changed, of course, as you might imagine, over that 22 years, putting emphasis on a, um, uh, a new, more technology-oriented crime trends. Uh, and so the, the, the nature of the workforce has changed quite a bit over time.
0: It sounds fascinating. Um, And so uh, maybe tell me a little bit about those 20, how many years um, in the FBI?
1: 22 years in the FBI. I was was lucky. I I had um, a number of mentors, and these are older agents, uh, both white and black for that matter. I want to make sure I I, I put an accent on that, uh, who saw in me, Leadership capabilities and talents and these folks um, uh, guided me through my career, made sure I had opportunities um, uh, to uh, do things that I wanted to do. And I literally went through a, a 22-year career getting a taste of uh, it, deep experience and light experience and everything I wanted to do in the Bureau. There are very few people I think that could come out at the end of their FBI career and say they did everything that they wanted to do. Um, You know, I I worked counterterrorism matters. Uh, I worked uh, as a young agent bank robberies in the city of Los Angeles. At the time, Los Angeles was the bank robbery capital of the world. And there I was on the bank squad as uh, I think I was a three year agent at the time, Uh, teamed up with a senior agent. And and there we were responding to bank robberies, driving around in the Crown Vic. You know, doing the <laughs> doing the victim teller interviews, and then subsequently following up on leads, looking for
0: what was that? Uh, looking uh, for bank robbers. I'm blanking on that the name now. Um, oh. The movie with uh, I call him Canoe Reeves. Uh, uh, the, 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 they're the bank. They're the bank robbers. <laughs> yeah,
1: with with, with Reeves with the, the masks, with the surfers,
0: president masks, the and the surfers. surfers movie, yeah, point, break, the, duh. The movie, point Break. So you were you were <laughs> one of those guys, right?
1: I I was one of those guys, although I was not at the um, now closed. I think he was assigned to the Redondo Beach RA or something like that. Um, Yeah. So, I I mean, I got a chance to work bank robberies in the city of Los Angeles for a couple of years. And at the time. So how do you uh, catch bank robbers? It's very hard. Is it really? (laughs) Very. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. At the time that we were um, this again, early 2000s, late, uh, late 90s there were annually, I think somewhere in the neighborhood, and again, so for Los Angeles, you have to count the surrounding county. So that goes all the way down south to Orange County and then all the way up north to San Luis Obispo. Uh, there were more than 2,000 robberies a year hmm. um, uh, in all of those areas. And there were you know, a handful of us assigned to work bank robbery matters throughout the Los Angeles division. So what I just described for you was the FBI's version of the Los Angeles office that actually went from a pretty
0: big Orange county.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it was huge. And and it's one of the it's the third largest office in the in the FBI. So it's um, there's a reason why the, the FBI sends a ton of agents to L.A. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of work doing a lot of a lot of ground to cover, um, uh, you know, so to, to get back to the ability to what I call um, reshape yourself. Uh, essentially, I did, you know, great work. But every couple of years I would raise my hand and say, I want to go I want to go learn and do something else. Uh, And I had the opportunities and abilities to do that. And so, you know, I walk out on the other end of a career with the Bureau, again, having worked counterterrorism matters, um, traveled overseas on behalf of the Bureau to learn and and conduct um, uh, uh, liaison with foreign entities on behalf of the Bureau and counterterrorism matters. I worked bank robberies. uh, I worked um, intelligence matters. I worked uh, and led. Um, public corruption and organized crime matters. And then I topped it all off with a switch to uh, cybersecurity. Hmm. So uh, again, uh, just a, 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 across the spectrum, very few people got the opportunity to move around and do the things that I got a chance to do. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm grateful for that experience. It really give, gave me a depth of understanding of the organization um, that many, I think, agents don't get an opportunity to get. And then, of course, like I said, on top of that, I was a SWAT certified agent. And had an opportunity to participate um, in scores of uh, warrant service, um, you know, arresting subjects, uh, violent criminals, that kind of thing. I mean, it, it literally was all the things that you expect to get to do, you know, putting on the uh, I called it the black ninja outfit um, uh, to go do the bidding of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. It was a uh, it was an interesting career.
0: So maybe tell me a little bit about that. Um, I have a particular interest In how you take down bad guys like that, Um, you may know uh, one of my best friends, a guy I consider a a brother from another mother, uh, was murdered last year on October 1st. Uh, He was attacked at 3 a.m. in his home. Uh, They tried to rob him, kidnap him, murdered him by four uh, men. And terrible. uh, uh, Fuck. Sorry for your loss. Thank you so much. Um, I tell you another thing about that. I know all about the Santa Cruz County Sheriff's Office, and I could tell you exactly how much racism there is in that office. Zero, because my brother was a brown guy, and the four evil that killed him were white guys, and there's they didn't give a shit about any of that stuff. But interestingly enough, because there were four killers, uh, and they were all in four different locations, I have, and they they took them down if not simultaneously, virtually simultaneously, because uh, obvious reasons you can't take down one and all of a sudden they all start talking. Uh, so different locations, one was even in Michigan outside of California. And so with somebody who has a special interest in exactly this, if if you were in charge of or on the team that had to take down four evil in separate locations like that, um, maybe tell me about what, that, what that's like. <laughs>
1: Sure, so uh, one again, sorry for the loss of your Thank friend. You. Okay. Um, I, I think that um, you know any experience like that is traumatic and um, uh, it's good on a good note. your experience with law enforcement and what came came out on the other end was a positive one uh, because when things are are going right and when law enforcement is engaged appropriately, it can do amazing things. Um, what you described that multi location takedown thing is something the FBI does constantly. Uh, Because it is a federal investigation force, um, uh, many of the investigations that the FBI engages in uh, have uh, geographically multiple locations where subjects uh, are located, and it was not uncommon uh, to be involved in a quote unquote takedown of a subject that was occurring uh, essentially simultaneously to another subject being taken down who was connected to the same case. So, I mean, I mean, in any investigation for the FBI, there's typically a case agent um, that is whatever the central office is that uh, that that grabbed the original case, um, and as the tentacles of the case expands. Um, In the FBI's vernacular, you would essentially send out what they call a lead uh, to uh, another office or the closest field office to where that lead needs to be executed. Uh, And you would work collaboratively with the other agents in that other field office. Uh, all the while, uh, from a command and control perspective, you're operating uh, with that overall look as to when the takedown needs to happen, who all's involved. Um, uh, you will be working very, very closely with the United States Attorney's Office and um, the uh, location of all of the activity but most likely in the um, uh, the central location where the main case is being worked out of. Uh, and you would coordinate all do of the
0: sort of interrupt you, MK. Yeah. Do, do the U.S. attorneys have investigators the same way a, D, a DA's office would have investigators that are sort of so, somewhat sidecar with you or is it different?
1: Uh, yeah. So what you just described is the relationship between the FBI, Secret Service, uh DHS to some extent with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Their investigators are the investigators of the other federal um entities that uh, that may that that essentially bring cases to them. Uh and the yeah. FBI is one of the entities and of course I miss the US Marshals Office. But yeah, the FBI is one of the entities that works very, very closely with uh the US Attorney's Office and um Uh, I don't know what the percentages are in terms of where a a particular U.S. attorney's office gets most of their cases, but a large amount of them typically come from the local FBI uh, office that's uh, in whatever Mm -hmm. region they happen to be operating in. So, yeah, I mean, you're you're lashed up with a um, assistant United States attorney pretty early on, especially in a criminal case where you need um, uh, grand jury subpoenas and things to build the evidence for the case, uh, they're brought on board early and they are absolutely involved in the uh, in the planning in terms of how it is that you're going to go about executing um, uh, the warrants and the timing of it and the such and the preparations to bring all these folks to, to trial uh, and get them into the court system. So, I mean, it's a big collaborative effort. <clears throat> it's nothing... Um, uh, it's not as cool as, you know, it, it, as it's sometimes depicted in movies where you have all of these, all this technology available to you and all of these things sort of moving, um, uh, in sync with one another. Uh, a lot of it's manual. Uh, in terms of the mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, engagement of it, but at, nonetheless, it's still again a very cooperative process. Uh, and the FBI and Secret Service and the, they do this stuff all the time. Take take down people in a variety of locations, and then you have assets in those different locations that you plug into the problem, uh, and they're able to um, execute the warrants in the uh, in the appropriate districts where they uh, where they are served.
0: Um, and one of the things I imagine that's part of the planning is I would imagine you have to assume there's going to be gunfire and or violence. That is to say, you have to pre-plan that this is not, they're not going to say, hey, thanks for showing up. We surrender. Yes.
1: Well, what you have to do is you have to do the necessary amount of investigation and intelligence gathering to get to know your subject before you actually go knock on the door. Uh, And that's frankly what the FBI is very, very good at. Um, uh, Again, so The FBI has the luxury of operating at its own timing, whereas uh, local law enforcement may not have that luxury available to them and may be required uh, to engage in response to something. And so you don't get the benefit of having uh, the ability to do a deep amount of planning. Although you do the same planning, you just do it much quicker and you Mm -hmm. execute on it much quicker. So um, there's a ton of intelligence that goes into that. Um, The short answer is no, you don't make the assumption uh, that every uh, engagement is going to end in gunfire. Uh, What you do uh, preemptively is you do your homework on the subject to figure out whether or not they're known for violence, whether or not they have weapons or known to carry weapons. Um, You know, there are some instances, any number of instances where you conduct a, an investigation, you know, certainly in the white-collar realm and otherwise, where you don't expect to meet uh, resistance or gunfire when you're dealing with, a, uh, uh, dealing with a subject. So, I mean, it just it varies, and the law enforcement entity is required to do a tremendous amount of pre-engagement uh, intelligence gathering so that they can better assess what tools to bring to the table.
0: And I guess regardless of the amount of homework you do and the assessment around the, the subject that you're taking down, You just never know what somebody's going to do in a moment. So you got to be ready for anything, right?
1: You got to be ready for uh, the possibility that it may end badly. I mean, you're, you are given um in enforcement capabilities where you're depriving people of their of their liberty you know uh, yes. so don't don't assume that nothing bad's going to happen but don't necessarily go into every engagement thinking that something bad's going to happen you have to plan and train for that possibility and be ready be ready to react to it in the event that it does happen
0: and so as i if we think about training for a second you are an individual that has experienced a massive amount of training and preparation in your life, M- more than I think uh, your average Jill or Joe.
1: As, as my best friend and I call it, we like to say we've had our metal tested many times.
0: <laughs> yes. And, and uh, you know, the, the Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts, the motto used to be be prepared. I got to imagine... It, there are few people who have been trained to prepare for the unpredictable and potentially bad unpredictable than, than you, MK.
1: <laughs> well, and, and that, that's a testament and a reason why you would hope that the training is good, right? Like I, I, I hope that I relayed to you earlier, uh, I felt as though my experience in the FBI, the, the FBI gives an unparalleled level of uh, police training. Um, I have to believe at the end of my experience with that organization that some of the best police instructors uh, on the planet uh, happen to be uh, FBI agents and people engaged uh, you know, in their duties. So I absolutely feel um, capable of responding to and comfortable probably in situations where other people uh, do not feel comfortable because I have had an extensive amount of training and preparation for um, interactions with people. But, uh, you know, one of the things that the Bureau also does a good job of is is teaching people um, how to escalate and de-escalate their response to situations. You know, every situation does not require uh, your, uh, uh, does not require a heavy-handed approach. And you have to be able to make quick judgments as to how it is that you're going to solve whatever problems put in front of you.
0: I I don't know, maybe I'm naive. What do I know about law enforcement? But sometimes de-escalations... Way easier than it might seem. I had a little incident happen recently. I went to uh, our local UPS store and had a bunch of things to send. And, you know, given the situation we're in, there's blue tape everywhere. And of course, you've got to be wearing a mask and it's all sort of very carefully laid out. And I was on my phone waiting with my package and um, I guess I just sort of started to ease up a little bit off my blue line that I was supposed to be standing on and because I thought the guy in front of me was moving, but I was, wasn't really paying attention. I was on my phone. And I hear this voice from behind me, and it turns out it's an older African-American lady. And I forget exactly what she said, MK, but it was something like, you know, excuse me, um, you're supposed to be on the blue line. And, um, and I turned around. And I said to her, I said, "Oh, thank you." I, I didn't realize I made a mistake, and I stood step back, and then I looked at her. With, and I, she couldn't tell I was smiling. I get hopefully she could see it in my eyes, and I said, "You know, I need a lot of supervision. I'm rarely la- allowed out on my own." <laughs> and she just started laughing, and I, I didn't think anything of it until after I got in my car, and I just thought, you know, we're we're maybe that's a simple interaction, but we're at a point in time where there's so much social unrest and there's so much concern we all have for our economy for the, the well-being of our country and our people and people of the world this virus is terrifying the economic dislocation all of it has got a lot of us on edge right and it's, so it's easy to, to 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 sort of go to a bad place and um we just ended up having this wonderful little interaction i thought afterwards i thought wow you know that could have gone very differently. And I'm really glad it went the way it went.
1: Oh, I, and you, I have to watch myself even um, in some of these uh, interactions. Exactly what you just described. I mean, we're, we're at an interesting uh, moment uh, in terms of society. You know, we're, we're essentially locked up, uh, restricted to our homes, except for uh, essential travel. Everyone's now working from home 24-7, uh, you know, I my kids joke with me, I, I seem to jump on the computer uh, at about 8 or 8.30 in the morning, and I'm literally on the computer all day uh, <laughs> until I unplug at, you know, and I, I take my little breaks here and there. I'm, if I'm lucky, I can grab a workout. But, it, you know, right up until about 8 o'clock at night, uh, I am on the computer doing stuff. Uh, and it's largely all work-related. So, yep. you know, and the studies show we actually are more productive now uh, being remote. Uh, than people had imagined so it's it 's interesting, but uh, to your point um, it puts us on edge right mm-hmm. it, it makes it different when we finally get out and we 're interacting with people um, and I think to a you know to at least a small degree some of the um, um, some of the things that have gone viral where you see people interacting with one another i mean there, this has a lot to do with it. people are on edge and uncertain about the future, uh, and that creates a certain amount of tension a uh, natural tension that exists. And we all have to watch ourselves in terms of how we interact with one another.
0: So the, I couldn't agree more. And I'm I'm trying to be a good person. <laughs> I'm, I'm not always making it, but
1: uh. I, I hope that most of us want to be good, right? And but I've had to check myself a couple of times um, with people, and and yeah, I'm lucky. I stop myself and say, you know what? You're right, Roger. That I I should you know, I shouldn't have done that. Or Thanks for the advice. Agree, and you, know, yeah. you move on, right? And that is a, that is a form of de escalation because it could go very differently depending on what your reactions yeah. are.
0: Now, I also I want to ask you: Look, if you don't want to get into it, I understand. But if you do, I would love it. Um, you have such a unique perspective on the world and the current situation, MK. When you hear "Black Lives Matter" and when you hear "Defund the Police." Um, when you hear, um, no, no justice, no peace, um, as, uh, you know, and the, and the riots and the protests and all that. So what does that stuff look like to you? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so and it's it's hard for me to digest this into a simple uh, response to what you're saying, and and even the uh, Black Lives Matter and the defund police, two yeah. separate issues. Yes, black Black Lives do matter. Um, I have no problem with that statement. Um, that 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 is a uh, reflection, I think, again of, of many of the longstanding societal issues that the United States, uh, quite frankly, has yet to deal with as it relates to race relations in this country, and, and I and if I'm being honest, I think until we deal with it, uh, until we you know pull the scab off of that wound and deal with it in a way that allows that wound to heal, I think that these types of issues will persist uh, in American society. And we haven't been truthful and we haven't been honest about what that history is uh, and what it's like, uh, uh, because without honesty, you can't have reconciliation.
0: Um, Ooh, could you so say that,
1: I'm sorry to interrupt will-
0: you, could you just say what you just said again yeah. so it registers to my database?
1: Yeah, so I, I'm saying without honesty, you can't have reconciliation. And, until, as a country, we are honest about our history uh, and how um, African Americans were treated—not just when we were first brought to this country, but treated in the uh, in the intervening years after the end of slavery, throughout literally present day. Until we we'll, on, until we are honest about that and recognize. Um, that there are some changes that we need to make in terms of our perceptions and how we interact with one another and availability of resources. And again, this is a litany of things. So we're honest about that. You're not going to have reconciliation. And so these things will continue to bubble up from time to time. I mean, we, we are experiencing essentially a bubbling up of this topic um, that hasn't um, erupted in this way since uh, the 1960s. Uh, but and that simply means that it was never resolved in right. the first place. Um, and that's why we're still talking about the same issues. I am a big fan of a um, former author and writer, uh, black author and writer in the United States, a guy named James Baldwin. Um, you could go back, and I have since this whole thing started, and listen to James Baldwin's interviews from the 1960s and the statements that he made, the books that he wrote. The, the essays he wrote on this subject are still relevant to this day, and that is a it's problem. sad. I, I mean, how it, it's sad. How how is it that I'm able to go back to the 1960s, pick out a piece of literature and writing that's making an overall comment about American society, and it still be valid in 2020? That's that's astonishing to me. So uh, <laughs> clear clear indication that. Again, the problem has not uh, not been solved. I do want to touch on, and I appreciate your mentioning the idea of defunding police um, uh, because I've written about this. I've, I've made statements publicly yes. about what that looks like. Uh, I don't agree with that statement um, in its entirety. I, I get where people are coming from, the idea of defund. What they're asking for really is they want a change in policing. Um, they want and desire police peace officers to um, change their interactions and understand the responsibilities that they've been imbued with. And it's not clear that that's the case right now due to these numerous interactions where we're seeing um, black lives be eradicated from this planet um, uh, due to lots of different things that, you know, lack of training, potentially uh, racial implications being involved uh, in those interactions, but just the, the numbers are just, they're, they're mm-hmm. too much. I mean, even one's too much. And I, I, you know, as a former law enforcement official, when I when I when I first watched um, uh, the George Floyd incident, my head almost exploded. I, I just, if you watch that and you are not empathetic to what that man experienced in the final moments of his life, um, some it now, something's not wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Something's wrong with you.
0: Yeah, very very much so.
1: That, that's, that's, how, that's how I feel. So I don't agree defund the police. I do agree that people should be able to demand from police a different level and way to engage. Um, you know, I, I like to use you know, police believe that they're in the business to protect and serve um, with emphasis on that serve part. They're there to serve the public. Um, and then that service if a large portion of the public is telling you they have a problem with how they're being served, you need to take a step back and potentially listen and adjust uh, and make some changes. Because, um, you know, the, the, the statements that um, uh, many African-Americans are making now is that, you know, just the, what we're seeing, literally seeing now for the first time because of recorded engagements and things like that, what we're seeing um, is not acceptable.
0: Yes. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, you you said something, you used a phrase there, and I want to underscore it, but before I do, I want to uh, set it up a little, if I could. You know, as a three-time public company CMO, I think a lot about marketing, as you might expect, uh, try to be a student of marketing. And I think to be a good student of marketing, you also are a student of language. And one of the things I've learned over time, MK, is that a demarcation point in language creates a demarcation point in thinking which ultimately creates a demarcation point in actions and outcomes. And and a simple example would be, you know, you and I are virtually the same age. Uh, When I was a kid, the people who lived on the street were called typically winos and bums. And today we call them homeless people. And the way you think about a bum is different than the way you think about a homeless person. And so there's been a, a change in language to create an empathy and a humanization as opposed to a dehumanization. So I, I pay very close attention to what things. Thank you. Yeah. I, and so I, I pay very close attention to what things are called. And one of the ideas I've sort of been kicking around with folks uh, in your line of work is would it make a difference if we sunset the term law enforcement and we adopted the term that you just used, which is, you said peace officer officer, peace or peacekeeper, because it's an interesting point of view that could contextually shift things a little. Now, some people say, oh, you know, you can call them whatever you want. It, the problems are going to be there. Well, maybe. But I, I'm curious about you. Use the term "peace officer." What, what What do you think about the distinction "peace officer" versus law enforcement?
1: So, like you, I'm also a fan of language, and I and I try in my uh, speaking pattern to be as precise uh, as I can possibly be in terms of the words, uh, in terms that I use. Um, uh, the term "peace officer" is yes. already in use. Um, there are there are many states. Um, and entities that use that term to describe their law enforcement um, forces. Um, I think a distinction in terms of how it is they're referred to is something that may help in the training um, uh, acumen in terms of how training is delivered and how it is that you acquaint a new officer with what their responsibilities are, uh, both to society, to the department themselves, that kind of thing as you extrapolate that out. Um, uh, it would make a difference, but again, it's already in use. And I think that there's much more of an emphasis that needs to be placed, um, on the service aspect of the responsibilities of peace officers, as opposed to, um, the, uh, as opposed, quite frankly, to anything else. Their job, they are in service to the public. Um, they are not an occupying force. Uh, and in many of the interactions that you see, at least the ones that are captured on video, um, you see folks um, peace officers acting like they're an occupying force. And that's, that's not the job uh, that they signed up for. Um, what they signed up to do was to serve the public and, quite frankly, to keep the peace, you know, so as, as I've written about, you know, stop society from falling off uh, the edge. Uh, and there are times when you need um, uh, tools and capabilities available to you um, that may allow you to, again, save your life or the life of someone else um, uh, but there are also times where uh, that interdiction needs to be um, de escalated and brought in in a way that again respecting everyone 's lives the The studies are clear there are entities that have done a lot that have looked at this a lot um, and it 's almost you know and I read this statement the other day and it re- really resonated with me isn 't it intuitive to us that diversity would actually lead to better solutions like you you I think you probably inherently believe that people naturally i would think I do believe that the more different lenses you approach a problem, the better uh, chance it is of you coming up with something successful uh, on the other end. We definitely have better food
0: <laughs> 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 yeah, <laughs> to be yeah. silly, yeah. Uh, you know, but yes, <laughs> the, the spice thing. of life. Right. And, and to your point, look, you and I are both dudes. Well, um, you're married to a, a female person. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, as well as I am. You have been for a while, yes? You, and you've yeah. made people with this person you're married to, right? Right, right. And um, I'm sure you know the same thing about your wife that I know about my wife. She's really freaking different than me. <laughs> right, yeah. And and, and here's point. the one that I people need to understand. The number one reason I'm interested in her, attracted to her, and want to live with her is because she's not the same as me yeah this 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 difference
1: um, is something that we're attracted to naturally uh, as humans, and the fact that we don't have uh, this variety, the spice of life in the workplace um, really is holding us back i think from from greatness at least that's that's the tack i 've been taking uh, on this subject because actually uh, I speak on it um, uh, uh, throughout Uh, is one of the topics um, that I get an opportunity. And I'm
0: glad you do. Thank you for that.
1: Yeah. And the other thing I do, again, you know, try to put my money where my mouth is. Uh, I have a leadership position in an organization. Um, We just stood up a chapter here of this particular organization uh, called the International Consortium of Minority Cybersecurity Professionals. And it's one of the many uh, organizations, nonprofits out there that's like, hey, there's a problem here. Uh, And we need to address it Part of the way that we address it is by networking together and bringing folks uh, like-minded and allies uh, within the context of this organization so that we can help people, um, frankly, achieve what you and I have achieved. I, I've been given access to this community um, at a very, very high level. I've had the opportunity to sit down with members of the C-suite and boards of directors of lots of big companies, uh, and I have now daily these interactions with customers of Palo Alto Networks. and man, if I, if I can impact change in some way, shape, or form, I'm going to do it because um, this is a great job field. Uh, why shouldn't everyone have access to this? It, you know, interesting to note, you know, in the COVID-19 crisis, cybersecurity and technology have been growth fields. That, that they are among a small number of uh, business enterprises that have actually thrived uh, during this period. And the fact that the, those businesses, again, large groupings of them, um, uh, have very small percentages of minorities. Again, it, it's an indication that the minority uh, population who is talented and technically oriented and capable uh, don't have access to the same growth and, uh, and participation that I've had access to. So uh, there's definitely some change that needs to happen in the industry. And, and I, I try and speak on it and I'm in the process of doing whatever I can, even if it's one by one, you know, uh, each one help one, uh, you know, grabbing someone who's interested, Uh, enlightening them to the possibilities and then doing whatever I can to help them uh, gain access.
0: So if in the domain of entrepreneurship and in the domain of um, the technology industry, I would ask you the same question I asked you before more broadly uh, around how I can uh, uh, be supportive and make a difference for black folks. Would Would your answer to the question, how can I help black entrepreneurs, black people get into technology that want to, um, would it be any different? Um... And it might be
1: slightly different. So, I mean, entrepreneurs, and I would distinguish between entrepreneurs and those who uh, want to level up their skills and merely enter uh, uh, technology industries or even cybersecurity. So entrepreneurs, at the end of the day, you know this probably better than I do, they need access to money. I mean, I mean that, that, and, and their deals don't get seen uh, by the right people who who have access to this money. Uh, that's the purpose of all of these organizations that have popped up, uh, even some minority-owned. And there's there's quite a few minorities doing some great stuff in this space uh, who've started their own venture capital uh, firms, who've started their own um, angel investing uh, apparatus so that they can help minority entrepreneurs get their ideas uh, to market. Um, it, they need access to money, in short and simple, and so to the degree that, Um, it's all about networking opportunities and putting them in front of the appropriate folks. No one's asking for any handouts, right? It's not like, let me get this great idea that happens to have been created by someone black or brown. Let me get this great idea in front of these people because the people who created are black and brown. No, it's a great idea that's likely going to yield people dividends in the way of profits. So they need an opportunity to present that idea to people who may be interested in bringing it to market and they don't always have those opportunities available to them. And then, you know, the on the flip side, that other topic of getting people into the industry, um, you know, the science is in on that too. It turns out that we like to hire people that look like us, right? It, 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 it turns out uh, that when you're going through a uh, you know a stack of papers or when you're interviewing people, the people that resonate with you are people who have similar backgrounds. So you know if I come across a black Naval Academy graduate who served in the Marine Corps uh, who happens to <laughs> have been an FBI agent, I'm going to say, "Wow, you know what? This guy looks great. He, we you and hire- I, have, you and I are brothers. <laughs> <laughs> we, we should hire him." And people do those kinds of exercises in nearly every aspect. Oh, they went to the same college as I did. Oh, they come from the same neighborhood that I come from or grew up in the same region of the world. We're always looking for that commonality. And I think all we're asking people to do is stretch your optic just a little bit, right? Understand that there are people with the requisite skills and talents who come from these diverse backgrounds and neighborhoods who could not only do the work that you're looking for them to do, chances are that by simply adding them to your uh, enterprise that you will actually be better and do better.
0: Incredibly well said another And look, I could talk to you for 12 hours. I, we should do a 15-part mini miniseries. Um, one thing I also want to touch on, if I could, you ha- you are a person clearly, and of course, we're just getting to know each other, and I'd be forever grateful to the legendary Dan Cassetta for setting us up, one of the all-time greats. I've never met a more heart-centered leader than Dan Cassetta.
1: Yeah, I, I've been exposed to an entire uh, group of folks who, again, just all... Uh, well-meaning folks who are deeply experienced and have access and capabilities. And I'm just, I I get amazed every time I get, get around those guys.
0: Yeah. It's a pretty special group. Uh, The thing I'm also insanely curious about is your seeming ability, MK to reinvent yourself. You know, I talk, I talk to a lot of uh, veterans Uh, who've made the transition into the uh, private sector, some of whom have become entrepreneurs and tech executives as well. I work with a few in in a couple capacities and uh, I have a real soft spot for um, our vets. And I love seeing our vets in Silicon Valley, in the technology industry doing cool things. Uh, So you, you, you made the transition from the Marines to the FBI. uh, And now of course to a very senior position at one of the uh, premier companies in Silicon Valley. And so uh, tell me a little bit about how you think about this, this ability to kind of uh, leverage your, your past and your experience and your history, but at the same time reinvent yourself into what sounds like new careers along the way.
1: Yeah, very purposeful. Um, I, it was imbued in me at a very, very young age that I was capable, uh, literally, by you know my dad, who I give credit for this, just capable of doing whatever it is that you set your mind to. Um, so I have never suffered from uh, what for some people are, this vision of obstacles in their way that are insurmountable. I don't think that there's anything I'm not capable of learning and or doing uh, without enough time, emphasis, and application uh, of effort. Uh, I've proven that, as you just simply described, especially over the course of my bureau career, like I said, I had mentors and others who, who said, yeah, let's give this guy a chance. He says he can, he says he can do this. Uh, and we, he's shown himself to be successful in what he's doing right now. So let's give him the opportunity to switch gears and go do something else. And that's exactly what I did towards the end of my career in the bureau. It was all purposeful. Um, I had always had an interest in comp sci, uh, even as a little, you know, I'm, I'm a nerd, uh, nerd kid from the 70s. I grew, I was, you know, what I saw Star Wars in the theater when it originally came out. I'm so a, did I. I'm a, I'm a nerd. Um, so <laughs> when I went to college, when I went to the Naval Academy, I had actually intended to major in computer science. Um, oh wow! I, I was excited about it, but I was so fearful that I would not be able to make it through Annapolis because, you know, for those people that don't know, the service academy academic requirements are. they're hard. Uh, (laughs) I don't, I don't know how else to put it. I mean, you get all of these valedictorians from all over the country who go to school at the service academies and they literally, they get their behinds kicked up and down uh, the rails because the academics at these places are just, they're, they're super hard. Um, They're, they're some of the toughest institutions uh, in the U S. So I knew that going into it. And I also knew Uh, you know, by uh, a kid who, you know, I was an average math student uh, in high school. I did well because I I worked hard, not because it came easy to me. I knew that getting a, you know, quote-unquote engineering degree uh, at a uh, service academy, uh, I didn't think I would survive it. So, and and Mm -hmm. admittedly, this is one area where I took the path uh, frequently traveled. I actually selected a major that I thought would provide me some relief and make it a little bit easier because the end goal was to pin on my bars and graduate from that place. And I didn't want to do anything that I thought might cripple my ability to do. That was the goal. I got to graduate from the place. It doesn't matter if I'm a comp sci major, if I'm poli sci, history, whatever. I just got to get my bars and be a Naval Academy graduate. Um, Mm -hmm. So I did not major in computer science and I regretted it. And as you hear me Blabbering on about it, I regretted. <laughs> I've regretted it to this day.
0: I made. It's got to be okay, MK. I think you'll. I think you'll still turn <laughs> yeah, out to be an okay adult. <laughs>
1: maybe. maybe. Um, I majored in political science because I was a decent. You know, I had a decent grasp of history. I actually had an interest in politics uh, at the time, and I figured it would be an easier path. Uh, and it was. You know, I, I had a successful um, time at Annapolis as a poli sci major, and I still. You know, got my rear end kicked by all the math and science courses that you have to take there because the requirements are so heavy to graduate that regardless mm-hmm. of what your major is, you graduate with a Bachelor of Science degree. So there's, you know, four or five semesters of math you end up taking to this day i still don't know what happened in a semester called differential equations i don't know (laughs) what
0: that is neither do
1: i (laughs) but i i successfully you know made it through that course you take two semesters of uh electrical engineering like i would not have signed up for that had it not been a requirement you take multiple semesters of physics i would not have signed up for that if it wasn't (laughs) a requirement to graduate um so interested in, in comp sci Towards the end of my bureau career, I literally said to myself, and at the time my wife and I were assigned to the Sacramento division, uh, and I was a public corruption supervisor. I had worked a cyber uh, investigation. Um, early in my days in Sacramento and got acquainted with where the Bureau was going with its investigation of cyber matters. Uh, Of course, I was excited by it, had all of this complexity involved in it. You know, there's these unknown adversaries that are literally on the other side of the planet. You're tracking their activities. You're seeing the tools that they're using, the techniques, how it is that they're going about it. So, I I mean, I was hooked at that point. And I literally used uh, that experience and my stick-to-itiveness. And I, I competed for uh, and was lucky to get uh, an executive position where I was now put in a leadership position with these cybersecurity folks. And in order, I, I took it an extra step, which I'm no, which I'm known to do. Um, I didn't <laughs> want to be I didn't want to be leading these folks and be in meetings with them and not know what was going on. So I took it upon myself. To get the training to level up my academic understanding of cybersecurity, I doubled down. I got all of the hard certifications that most people rail about. You know, I got the CISSP on the first pass. I went in, I got a CISM uh, certification. I went and took every SANS course available to me. Um, luckily, that the FBI. Uh, supported and paid for. And I leveled up my understanding to the point where not only did I understand what was going on, I had an opinion <laughs> about, yeah. about how to get to the end state on some of these investigations. And I tell you, um, not everyone would do that. Uh, and so, yes, I have reinvented myself Uh, at various stages and who knows maybe I have one other reinvention left I don't know that I'm I don't know that I'm gonna be a cybersecurity guy for the remainder of my professional life maybe there's something else out there that will uh, catch my eye and I will again do the homework I need to do and I'll jump off into that field and I'm sure I'll be successful I have every reason to believe so.
0: You're unbelievable, MK. Clearly, I could talk to you forever, um, but I do want to. Uh, I do want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on? Uh,
1: no, I, I I appreciate the opportunity to talk on, and you know, some of these subjects are very hard. Um, uh, hopefully, I got across um, to you and the eventual listeners that you know my my position on this is is rather unique, um, and I try as best I can to make sure that I bring. Uh, a depth of understanding to uh, multiple sides of issues as I look at how it is that we get to resolution on some of this stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I have very unique experiences from a lot of different angles. Um, and I, I still remain optimistic, you know, that um, at the end of the day, uh, especially nationally, that we'll show our true selves and that eventually we'll get on the path to, to healing and enlightenment, right? It's always about moving forward and not uh, not moving backwards.
0: Well, MK, you are a legendary human being. Um, your career is a total inspiration. It, it is fascinating to think that uh, your entire background, in the context of what's going on right now, um, you are you are the man of the moment. And um, I appreciate you know you you being public, your writing, and um, and just being a big, big voice uh, in Silicon Valley on a number of these topics. Um, It's fantastic. And I deeply appreciate you investing this time with me.
1: Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Great conversation. Hope it turns out. Thank you,
0: brother. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you. Well, there he is, MK Palmore. And um, I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And if you did, please share it with your world today. Now, of course, we are in uncertain times, and at times like this, we need a full picture of our business, and that's where my friends at NetSuite come in. NetSuite is a complete business system in the cloud from finance, inventory, HR, managing customers, and a lot more. NetSuite provides you everything you need to gain the visibility and control that you need to make the right moment-by-moment decisions. Visit netsuite.com slash different today, and uh, you'll get a free copy of their new guide um, that digs deep into what business leaders need to do now. So check out netsuite.com slash different today. And while you're there, you can also get set up for a free product tour of NetSuite. And uh, challenging times require data. And uh, that's where my friends at Splunk come in. They help you bring data to every question, decision, and action. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E, where you can learn how to turn data into doing. That's splunk.com slash D2E. And also remember my friend Dan Cassetta's podcast, Changing Lives. Check it out wherever you get legendary podcasts. All right, we would like to thank... The incredible MK Palmore himself. Uh, you can find him on the internet, M K Palmore, P-A-L-M-O-R-E dot Io. The incredible people at one life fully dot o r g. This is the nonprofit making a difference for decades now, or for over a decade now. <laughs> Don't make it longer than it's been. Helping people dream, plan, and live their best life. Please check out the number one life Fully Live dot O-R-G. Also, if you're in marketing, if you're a CEO, if you care about the growth of your business, check out the number one marketing podcast that is uh, hated by many and loved by few, Lockhead on Marketing. If you want to help scale yourself, why not check out my friends at bottleneck.online. Autranet will help you build a legendary B2B website in Silicon Valley. Check out N E T. And if you can make a difference in your community, dig deep in your wallet and maybe support a church a hospital, a food bank, or anyone else in your community that is doing good stuff right now. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. We deeply appreciate you sharing it. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by living podcast legend, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks, because right now uh, is a good time to be grumpy. <laughs> Sarah Knox and Jamie Jay do technical execution and legendariness around here. Diane Gervasio has got the website. Uh, remember to teach leadership, be kind, listen to Prince, spread podcasts, not viruses. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, mom and dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Harvey Weinstein. Sorry, Harv, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. Be good to each other. Stay safe. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different.